Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Nettie Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Welcome to the Society for American Soccer History's SASH session. Credit goes to our host today, David Kilpatrick, for this idea. Uh, as we've moved away from uh, the SASH conference, we're looking to do this uh, every first Friday. Today's session, the Scotch Professor Network, uh, stems from two things, David's uh, contacts uh, in Scotland, and then uh, a mutual uh, session with the Football Scholars Forum on the English game. And we'll see uh, some evidence today that it should be called the Scottish game. Well, we're happy to be building uh, some bridges between the Scotch Professor Network and SASH across the Atlantic Ocean. So founded in 1993, SASH works to promote, facilitate, and disseminate research into the rich history and heritage of soccer in the United States. You can best find us in two places, at our website, ussoccerhistory.org, and on social media, in particular, Facebook and Twitter. You can join the society through our website, and thank you to all our members for your interest and support. Right now, I want to pass it over to David Kilpatrick, who is Professor of English Literature and Sport Management, and the Program Director of Sport Management at Mercy College in New York City. He's also the club historian of the New York Cosmos, and uh, today uh, is uh, very much uh, his idea. So, uh, David, thanks for putting this together. Thanks, Tom, and, and thanks everyone for uh, joining us, uh, whether it's uh, good evening, good afternoon, or good morning to you, wherever you may be. Um, as we head into our Independence Day weekend, we're really blessed to have from the Hamden Collection uh, in the first half of our uh, 90 minutes, uh, Graham Brown, uh, speaking on the story of the lost Hamden Park, the world's most important football ground, Jed O'Brien on the Scotch Professor, A Half-Hidden History, and Jim McIntosh on his poetry about sport relevant. Uh, so the way we're going to structure this today is the first 45 minutes will be uh, our friends uh, from Hamden Collection in Scotland. The second 45 minutes will be a little more SASH-centric uh, with scholars from the United States. So uh, we will begin with Graham Brown, a utilities director by day. Graham Brown's core mission outside of work is to restore Hamden Bowling Club and ensure its phenomenal history is explained to the world. In 2017, Graham teamed up with Jed O'Brien and Thomas McNabb to found the Hamden Collection with a mission to promote and protect the three Hamden parks and all who play on them. Graham coordinates the activities of the Hamden Collection team, manages the social media platform at www.hamdencollection.com. Good afternoon. Many thanks to the organizers, Tom and David, um, and the wider organization for allowing us to present today. I firmly believe this is the beginning of a footballing history adventure, exploring and promoting our shared footballing history. The story I'm about to tell you is summed up by one word, obsession. This is the story of the lost Hamden Park and why it is the world's most important football ground. So, where is the real starting point of this story? I need to transport you back to Victorian Scotland, where a group of Highland men watched the locals play football 
at the Queen's Park Recreation Ground. Inspired by what they see, they meet at Dick's Bar, 3 Eglinton Terrace, to form a football club. The time chosen is 8.30pm, Tuesday, 9th July 1867, which I regard as the most important minute in footballing history. You can still visit this place 153 years later, which is now known as Victoria Bar. They agree on naming themselves Queen's Park Football Club, and their mission is to provide recreation and amusement for all of their members. I do love this quote from Richard Robinson, which explains how vital Queen's Park are to Scottish football. However, I want to go one step further and replace the word Scottish with the word world in this statement. Today, I'll give you a snippet of Queen's Park's footballing legacy, starting with the road to the master stadium builders. Queen's Park opened Hamden Park on the 25th of October 1873. Over the Previous 12 months, they'd fielded the entire international Scottish team, led the creation of the Scottish Football Association and Scottish Cup. Their new facilities boasted offices, a grandstand, an iconic pavilion, baths, the world, world's first use of turnstiles, and created the members' book, which you know today is a season ticket. Sound familiar? Yes, this is the template of every football stadium ever built. You may also be surprised to hear that these are the only pictures of it. When Scotland called this home from 1878, Queen's Park went one step further and by default Hampden Park became the world's first purposefully built international football ground. Scotland would play six times on this ground, winning six times, thrashing England 7-2, 5-4 and 5-1, and Wales were also sent home on the end of a 9-0, 5-0 and 5-1 defeats. That is a whopping 36 goals for and only eight against. I'm sure you'll agree that Hamden Park was Scotland's tartan fortress, which regularly witnessed crowds of 15,000 and beyond. So what else is important about the first Hamden? The key word in this article is private, which allowed them to excel at their footballing craft and athletic pursuits. During the 1873 to 1884 period, Queen's Park won the Scottish Cup on six occasions, as well as tearing apart the supposed English masters, Wanderers, in 1875, beating them 5-0 at Hamden Park. But this Tartan Fortress could not withstand the Victorian railway builders who requisitioned this land to build the Cathcart District Railway in 1884. Queen's Park were moved 300 yards north where they built the second Hamden at Cathkin. In 1903, they would move once more to the third and present Hamden Park, building the world's biggest football ground, the home of the famous Hamden Roar, which at its peak could hold 187,500 people. At this juncture, I need to take you into a different sport, but literally less than one mile away from the first Hamden. The Victorian Glaswegian held many recreational pursuits, one of the biggest being lawn bowling, as you can see demonstrated in the top right-hand corner. Palmody Bowling Club established itself in 1877, becoming one of the Glasgow establishment, which boasted the most concentrated number of bowling greens in the world. Here is a map of the bowling green, the only hint at the building structure. To Balmedy's credit, they won the Glasgow Club Championship twice and had Glasgow's first singles champion, Daniel Gibb. Another clue to the importance of this story is the Scots Gaelic for Palmedy, which is Burns of the Sons of God. An iconic phrase, as it would be Palmedy Bowling Club, which would ensure the Scotch professor stories, flows into the 21st century and beyond. However, in 1904, they were told they had to leave their site as Glasgow City Council requisitioned their land for housing. Fortunately, there was a vacant site less than a mile away, 
which had been abandoned some 21 years earlier by Queen's Park Football Club. The parallels are uncanny. Paul Medee moved into this abandoned site in 1905 and transported their turf to their new ground. Now all they need was a bull's house. How fortunate that 300 yards away, Queen's Park were on the move again and selling off Second Hamden, which included a pavilion. This was the era of ultimate recycling. We know Paul Medee brought their turf, we know they thanked the tiler and the plumber on opening day, and we know they built the most splendid bowls house at the cheapest cost. And of course, they renamed themselves Hamden Bowling Club and were founded at 8.30pm. Sound familiar? For the next 112 years, they would tell everyone they were on the first Hamden Park, including the Tartan Army, who regularly visited. They would explain to you that you were sitting in the original first Hamden Pavilion. The sorry truth was that no one believed them. And this is where we hit the fast forward button to 2011, where I moved into my new flat overlooking the, beautifully King, the beautiful Kingsley Rose Gardens and the Hamden Bowling Club. One day I received a letter explaining that the bowling club had dwindling numbers, nearly closed at the recent AGM, and were on the brink of shutting. The five word phrase that blazoned across the page was very simple, use it or lose it. Over the years, I became more involved in the club, social member, member, secretary, treasurer, house convener, and currently bar convener, and changed the face of Hamden Bowling Club, fell in love with its history, and ultimately went on a mission to prove its history once and for all. On Boxing Day 2016, I sat at my in-laws, flipped open my Mac and went searching. No one believed the legend of Hamden Bowling Club, as there was no map. I knew the Cathcart District Railway had gone through the middle of the park. There must be records of the railway, I thought. After some searching, I found the complete construction logs of the Cathcart District Railway in the National Records of Scotland and requested the section behind Hamden Bowling Club. After some months, I heard back and told that I'd been sent two maps and they contained the answer. This was a true fake or fortune moment. Here is me on the right opening the envelope on Saturday 11th of March 2017. Please remember that date for later. And on that day, Hamden Bowling Club was proved right and the map is the picture above. I'd proven once and for all the location of the first Hamden Park and located the world's first purposefully built international football ground. Now, you would think there would be some fanfare. However, I was afforded 100 words in the Scotsman on page 16. Next slide. Scottish footballing media is more interested in today and tomorrow than the history of which the sport is founded upon. In that moment, I realised I'd have to do something different to get this site recognised. Fast forward to Queen's Park versus Albion Rovers on 30th of December 2017. Ger O'Brien, Thomas McNabb and I head up to the third Hamden Park. That day we hatched the idea of the Hamden Collection and within weeks a website, Facebook and Twitter pages were built and the challenge of a building a team commenced. We now boast a team of exceptional talent including poets, historians, artists, filmmaker, graphic designer, web designer and all glued together by a gaffer, which is a title my good friend Jim McIntosh once called me. Our accomplishments exemplify what can be done with people power alone and zero money. The template is to make history exciting, and here are a couple of examples. We've partnered with Tenants Lager on our Restore First Hamden project. Tenants is part of the CNC Group, which is a multi-billion pound company. And for my North American friends, they own Woodchuck and wider cider brands. And here is me reciting poetry on Sky Sports on an East Beach at the Women's World Cup, which is Europe's largest sports broadcaster. 
Jim McIntosh wanted to ensure the women's team had a potent residence, to which I replied, why just have one, let's have lots. And the world's first national team poetry society was born, curated by our own poet in chief, who recited his own poem on Scottish TV within the same week. As you can see, the Hamden Collection juggernaut is starting to crank through the gears. In the last month, we've had two 3,000 word articles in major Scottish newspapers, and the momentum is starting to gather. Maybe the Scottish football media is starting to take notice of us. This flows nicely into the Scotch Professor Network, another one of my lateral ideas, to build a global network of like-minded individuals who will help communicate this story to the world. With the 150th anniversary of the first football international on St Andrew's Day 2022, this network will be crucial and help us to create a festival of football to mark this important date. They say always save the best till last. Here is our first Hamden mural designed by our artist in residence, Ashley Rawson. My old neighbour, who I challenged to come up with a mural design fitting for the back wall of the Hamden Bowling Club Pavilion. That would be seen by 200,000 railway passengers every single week. This was crowdfunded by the generous public with donations as far away as Australia and was unveiled in September 2019. So what do I conclude in all of this? I do believe in fate. The Scotch professors are smiling down at their creation. People are once again learning about the legend of the first Hamden. Remember that date I told you to remember? Look at a bit closer at the mural for the latest twist of fate in this story. The game was played on the 11th of March, 1882, and I discovered the only map in existence of the first Hamden Park on the 11th of March, 2017. Fate, isn't it? This is where I leave you with the About Us from the Hamden Bowling Club Twitter account, which I created in 2016. Hamden Bowling Club is the best wee club in the south side of Glasgow. Our mission is to tell the world our story and have a lot of fun along the way. Some things never change. The USA is now off the list. I've thoroughly enjoyed explaining to you why the Hamden, first Hamden is indeed the world's most important football ground. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to taking any questions. Graham, thanks so much. Um, I think we'll, uh, in the interest of time, try to save all questions for uh, added time or injury time, um, but uh, please keep them uh, uh, in, in line for a little bit later on. Thanks so much, Graham. Uh, next up, Jed O'Brien. Jed O'Brien is the founder of the Scottish Football Museum and rediscoverer of Andrew Watson, the world's first black internationalist. He is currently working on the Scottish game, how Scotland founded modern world football. It will entirely refute the myth that football originated in England. Jed. Thank you, David. Um, hello, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about a subject dear to my heart, which is the hidden history of Scottish sport. My purpose today is to explain why I'm trying to fashion an entirely different way of looking at sport in Scotland and as a corollary, the UK. We need to go back to 1872. The millions of words written by people with an Anglo-centric view has fatally altered the history of the sport, and 1872 is its first victim. I wish to change the outlook of all fans in both England and Scotland. It's natural for sports historians around the world to defer to historians in England, because England has been telling everyone for more than a century that they invented the game. And it is popular books like these on which most people base their opinions. Note uh, my most hated image in the world, the mob game in ye olde medieval times, 
and the egregious lie, it was the public schools that gave the world football. Here are two of the most ubiquitous images in world football. The writers have misunderstood the need to squeeze the names of the Queen's Park players against Wanderers onto the programme and wrongly assumed this was the way they lined up on the pitch. They've also misunderstood the term friendly in the days before league football. Books like this establish the culture of football history and are read by a thousand times the number who read a serious text on the subject of the association game. Now I'm laying down a marker here for St Andrew's Day 2022, the 150th anniversary of the first ever international. This game will be commemorated by the London media and therein lies the rub, the London media. Scotland does not have an independent media industry. It has 37 newspapers. In 2014, 36 of them promoted the unionist cause during the independence referendum. And so too did the BBC in Scotland. It showed up in a very stark fashion, the issues people have when they pick a subject which might place England behind Scotland. The concept that the history of football has been viewed through an Anglo-centric prism for so long that the truth of its foundation in the 19th century has been lost. Now this is Valeview Terrace in Mount Florida. It's on the south side of Glasgow and was once many miles from the city centre. But it's here at number three Valeview Terrace that one of the most important letters in the history of the world football was written. Not that you'd know it if you followed the Anglo-centric version of history. Let me add something that often is not seen in Anglo-centric views of the history of the game, Scottish context. This is the 1880s six inch map of what became part of Glasgow in 1912. Archibald Ray lived a five minute walk from what became the world's first international ground which Graham has mentioned, the first Hamden. The Grade A listed building where the Queen's Park players stored their equipment between 1867 and 1873 is the lodge for the Deaf and Dumb Institute. The pitch where they played, really a patch of ground, is just north of the lodge on which is built now the new Victoria Hospital. The old toll house where they stored their gear in the first year of the first Hamden is still on this map. Now, little of this information is referenced in Anglo-centric publications. And why? Because it builds a story which is inimical to the foundation myth involving public schools and mob football. Now, from that house, Archibald Ray wrote to invite Scottish football players to stake a claim for a place in the team. The letter assumes that there are players out there and that they're not members of Queen's Park. Otherwise, why write the letter? In Anglo-centric definitions of the creation myth, Queen's Park are often suggested as the only Scottish football team. It's such a simple letter, packing a dynamite phrase, to afford time for cooperation and practice. Here we have Archibald Ray casually mentioning that the men picked would have training and tactics drummed into them in such a fashion that implies a general knowledge of these concepts amongst Scottish footballers. 
And who might these footballers have been? Well, in this moment of Black Lives Matter, let us look at someone who smashes the English foundation myth into tiny shards. Now, I've had my own road to Damascus in 1990 when I started the project to create a National Football Museum for Scotland. I came across this picture of the 1882 Scotland team in an album. There in the back row was a black footballer. Yet I knew from the English media that Arthur Wharton of Preston North End was the first black footballer in 1885. And such was my own conditioning, I initially refused to believe the evidence of my own eyes. Over the following decade, my research proved that Andrew Watson was much, much more than a statistical curiosity. His sporting history made him one of the most important football players of all time, which brought me to another understanding, the concept of the Scotch professor. Now, it took me nine years and the discovery of this letter in the Scottish Athletic Journal to prove what I had known in my heart since 1990. Arthur Wharton of Preston North End was an interesting English statistic and no more. In contrast, Andrew Watson was an absolute giant of the game. The game which broke English hearts. Now I'm happy to admit that I've given this title to the 1882 match. I want to raise it up until people understand that it is one of the defining moments in world football. Again, don't go looking into many Anglo-centric publications for an analysis. It's impossible to explain away the third consecutive game against England, where Scotland scored at least five goals. This mural is intended to laud and define the players in a context which underlines their greatness. It memorialises and defines a team and a match which has been ignored in England because it doesn't send the right message. What evidence do I have? Here's a map from Keele University. They asked the students which areas of the UK they identified with the important sports that were invented on this island. These are intelligent young men and women who you would expect to have a reasonable degree of knowledge. Rugby, stereotypically, seems to have been born in the Welsh Valleys, which will come as a surprise to the Edinburgh rugby clubs who invented the passing and running game in the handling code. Cricket came from Yorkshire and South East England. Tennis is unsurprisingly seen as a greater London and home counties phenomenon. And as for Scotland, poor Scotland. Unfortunately, history hadn't been invented yet, except golf in a tiny area. This is what people in England think if they ever consider the idea of sport in Scotland. Now, a corollary arising from changing the history of football as it is understood in England is that it might percolate to other countries. This is even more necessary given the problem that Scottish culture has been subsumed into a UK culture for which read England. Here is the Geraldo de Madrid reporting on a game featuring Real Madrid and the Lanarkshire team Motherwell. Real were beaten 3-1 by a team of Scotch professors. The Spanish journalist was a little confused with the ethnicity of the visiting team. They reported that the first goal came from the English and that Real were a little confused by the calculated technique of the English players. This gives rise to a thought experiment which a Scot can never win. Do you want the superior tactics of Motherwell to be celebrated by the Spanish? 
but the accolades are given to England? Or do you want the game not to be mentioned at all and Scottish genius is forgotten? The final insult comes from the guardians of the world's game. Small laugh. You might expect that FIFA would be the most likely to know where football originated. Well, think again. Not only is the world's first international downgraded here, FIFA have taken it upon themselves to define an unofficial international accepted by no sentient being as the first ever international football match. And here lies the depth of the problem. So there we are. Scotland has a story to tell after all. And guess what? It's Scotland's unique right to generate and define its own history. We will start by raising up our voices for 2022 and thereby celebrating the first Hamden, the world home of football. Thank you. Jed, thank you very, very much. Uh, next up is Jim McIntosh. Jim McIntosh is the poet in residence for the Hamden Collection. In 2016, Jim became the first poet in the United Kingdom to be appointed poet in residence to a professional football club, St. Johnston, which just happened to be the team he'd supported since before he was born. He was also the editor of Mind the Time, a poetry anthology which raised funds for football memories, a Scottish-based Alzheimer's charity, and is currently the poetry editor for Nutmeg Football Magazine, the only sports magazine in the UK with a regular poetry section. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, David. Um, hello, everyone. A poem. We'll start with a poem. Open the curtains. Inhale the bird song. It's game day. Saturdays have always been football days. We've had our breaks, our summer breaks, our winter breaks, our, our pandemic breaks. Doing stuff, being buried to your neck on the beach by the children, on the MasterCard by the other half. But here it comes again. You can sense it. Scratching, itching, bubbling at the back of your eyes, folded into the plastic sleeve next to your season ticket. Tucked behind the clock, puzzled by your lack of attention, hidden behind the list for the big shop. Which will need to wait until Sunday, because Saturdays are football days. But wait. There's live games on Sunday television, on, on Monday night football, then Champions League on Tuesday, Wednesday, the UEFA Cup on Thursday, the last 16's on and on and on and on. Oh yes, but the Friday night game. But there's always click and collect because Saturdays are football days. And anyway, the takeaway does home delivery or maybe something out of the freezer until after the winter break before the split. Because, well... You know what I think of Saturdays. As David said, up until last year, I was also the, the poet in residence for St. Johnson Football Club. I, I, and mentioned there, I was the first ever uh, poet that had been appointed to a professional football club as a poet in residence in the UK. And to my knowledge, probably rarely beyond the boundaries of the UK. Um, when you support a team like St Johnston, you don't do it so you're writing poetry about the high days and all the cup wins. We've won one cup in 140 years. What I did find in, in really quite early on was the many rich seams of human interest that were generated by being involved with a small club like St Johnston. 
And only with that, the, the, the weave of passion for all of the club that comes with that. But importantly, in a broader sense, the game that we all love generates all of the rainbow of colours that you get of emotions. And all of which, for me, manifest themselves in poetry. And poetry, I guess, for perhaps a, a large percentage of the, the, the audience and the membership here, perhaps should have been contained and left in school in double English on a wet Tuesday afternoon you know, with a bit of Shakespeare or a bit of uh, Walt Whitman, maybe. I don't know. But I, as I engaged with the, the various strands of our, the community wing of St. Johnson, it became apparent to me that poetry was very, very important. It's just that it was a kind of guy thing. We didn't want to say that we were like poetry. Four years later, one of my poems has been read at 12 funerals of St. Johnson supporters. In a kind of black humor wish, I wish they would stop dying because I'm kind of, you know, we're running out of supporters, you know. So, um, <laughs> but I especially found that one particular aspect of um, St. Johnson's community wing was the Football Memories Group, and David mentioned a, a poetry anthology that I eventually wrote. The Football Memories Group met, or still do, meet every three weeks, and they support and welcome anybody who has to any degree Alzheimer's or dementia. In fact, it's a bit more extended than that. It's really anybody that's just downright lonely. You get guys coming from care homes for two or three hours of um, contact and just talking about football. It's a great thing. And I wrote one or two poems for that, which ended up being 100 poems by 50 of my contemporary poets across Scotland. And we wrote, we wrote this book called Mind the Time, which was eventually uh, published, sold out within three weeks on the first print run, and ended its, the finale, the last event that we did. We toured various book festivals with it, talked about uh, football, talked about Alzheimer's, raised awareness of that. And we did the last event in Scottish Parliament a year later. So by that, it led me to, to speaking and being invited to read poems on a variety of subjects. Most importantly, mental health and well-being conferences, disabled supporters associations, schools and workshops. The Thrand, of course, was our collective passion for our local club and beyond that football in itself and the power of the spoken word is, is so evident because fundamentally poetry must be spoken yes you can read it and I would encourage you to go and buy my books <laughs> but poetry must be heard poetry can reshape opinion and it can reinforce newfound truths I point to Jed and Graham and in that and it importantly can strongly expose the crumbling edifices of empirical authorities whose comfort can be deflated by well-crafted verse. Now, I haven't mentioned the SFA in that, but if you want to take it that way, you may well do. People, this is being recorded, isn't it? People can be hooked into your narrative by poetry, enough to allow the academic strand, the work of yourselves, Jed, David, arguments to take the stage once the audience is engaged or even to reinforce the academic explanation. Maybe it's you know, my existence as being poet-in-chief with Hamden with St. Johnston. I'm also the poetry editor for Nutmeg Football Magazine. 
It's the only sporting magazine, bar none, that has a poetry section in it. And maybe there is that. Maybe it's Scottish exceptionalism grounded in that kind of cultural perspective drawn from centuries of workers, both agricultural and industrial, whose entertainment was self-generated way, way before Sky Television and, and, and the internet. The farm bothy, the factory canteen, the local pub, the bars, all rang out to the spoken word of song, storytelling, and of course, recalled poetry that had been passed down the generations. And of course, these traditions were undoubtedly brought to the United States by those working in the factories and playing the game at the weekend. These people were undertaking the same journeys as the Scotch professors who were in amongst their, became in amongst their midst. Now, I have no idea where Robert Burns ever played football or watched football, but there's an idea there if Jed or anybody else has got the time to go and research it. I've certainly asked Professor Jerry Carruthers at Strathclyde University if he would find the time to, to find out if there is a mention there. But importantly, why did I mention Burns, I mean, the, the most famous poet possibly even in the world? But it, it's worth pursuing. In either way, his influence remains woven in the fabric of all our shared pasts. Because Burns was a poet whose words are grounded on the very same creative paths and the inspiring fields and the tough, hard-toiled factories with which the Scotch professors and their contemporaries would have known. There's a forming, former mining village in Scotland called Glen Buck, whose population never rose above 1,700 people, and it produced more than 50 football players including six Scotland internationals and four FA Cup winners. And one of the most famous sons of Glen Butt was a lad called Bill Shankly. And Bill Shankly, uh, for all you historians, I'm quite sure know, was the famous manager of Liverpool Football Club who coined the phrase of saying that football was not a matter of life and death. It was far more important than that. But Glenbuck was a mining village, which generated, it was a dangerous place to work. And of course, the incentive to make it as a footballer was very high. And that success begat success. And Bill Shankly quoted um, many, many times that Robert Burns and his poetry was a huge influence on him and grounded how he would speak to his players. So there you go. Self-improvement through sport, and through culture, through poetry, the spoken word. Burns clubs, football clubs, together, advancing forward and step with each other. It was then, I suspect it is in New York State and beyond, and I'm sure it still is now. Finish with one last poem. It's called Rituals and I wrote it for the Mental Health and Wellbeing Conference. Wear the same scarf again, and the same jersey again. Expose your heart again on the same sleeve, again, because rituals matter. They matter bottom six, top six, last man standing, beating the drop, reaching the top, sliding uncontrollably downwards, but acknowledge the effort, always. Use the same turnstile again, the same cue again, for a pie, You'll eat again, crust first, then the lid, again, because rituals matter. 
They matter in Europe, or maybe not, to stop the rot from bottom six, never top six, last man standing in the glare of live TV or on bended knee, praying. Fear the future again, grasp the chance, through the fingers glance, practice your scream, but never, and never forget, if your neighbor stumbles, in step, in word, in remembering, in health, hold out your hand, help them up, because rituals matter, always. Thank you. That's me. Thank you so much. Well, that uh, brings uh, to a close the uh, first half of our uh, first Friday SAS sash session. Yeah, that is really tough to say, isn't it, Tom? Uh, I'm next up. Uh, my talk uh, today is Tartan Threads Woven in U.S. Soccer History. My subtitle for this uh, is a patchwork template for further study. Tartan, the distinctive fabric woven for generations, tying together the generations with their distinctive patterns. My father's father is buried in the tartan of our clan Cahoon. Prescribed by the Dress Act of 1746, the wearing of the tartan now is an affirmation of Scottish identity. My brief text today will attempt to tease out the threads woven between us that connect us as sash, connect our cause with that of our brothers who have joined us today from the Hamden Collection. I propose here to explore how Scottish diaspora studies can help us better understand the dissemination of the beautiful game. As the contested narratives, the challenge to hegemony of the Hamden collection parallels, parallels that of Sash, like colored threads in a tartan. By identifying the pattern of the Scotch professor, we find their cause is interwoven with our own. We are cut from the same cloth. In common, we seek nothing more than truth as the antidote for the amnesia and apologetics that compromised the health of the game in both our countries. 700 years ago, the Declaration of Arbroath brought, put forth the radical notion that the people have a right to reject tyranny, a template for the text we celebrate once more tomorrow on the 244th anniversary of its signing. By act of Congress, April 6th is celebrated each year here as Tartan Day celebrating the monumental achievements and invaluable contributions made by Americans of Scottish descent from 1998's congressional record in the Senate. Arthur Herman neglects sport, though, when he demonstrates how the Scots invented the modern world. But you cannot get in the modern world without considering the modern game. So what tartan threads are woven into the tapestry of U.S. soccer? How Scottish are we? Data from the United States Census Bureau makes it clear very many Americans identify with Scottish or Scotch-Irish ethnicity, even if those numbers continue to show some decline. Whether or not those entered either under origins on this year's census will show the number as more or less than 8 million, the true number most likely far exceeds those who know of and identify with their own Scottish ancestry. Bagpipes in Brigadoon. Oh, in golf. Somehow the sport of the rich mythologizes itself as Scotland's national game. Bugs Bunny against Angus McRory represents how Americans saw Scottish games in 1948. Groundskeeper Willie might be seen as progress with cartoon stereotypes, acknowledging football as the game of the people. But the Simpsons character identifies at Ellis Island as Dr. William McDougall, never identifies his former profession, 
and his didactics are restricted to hooliganism. You call this a soccer riot? He says in disgust over Springfield's emerging supporter culture. Scotland's contribution to the global game is reduced to fan violence, ignorant of and in contrast with the interweaving patterns on the pitch woven by the Scotch professors. The first thread, or first threads like a baby's blanket at its birth, may be found by identifying clubs whose identities are clearly patterned on a Scottish linguistic template. Ignoring dozens of Rangers, Celtic, and Hibernian clubs across the country, not to mention clubs whose identities are local with strong connect concentrations of Scots, from the independent clubs identified by Mel Smith as playing association football up until 1891, one compiles a list of more than a dozen clubs across the country, from Massachusetts to California, identifying as Scottish by calling themselves Caledonians or Thistles. And there's a list of them that I've identified there. Each club, a thread to follow through the labyrinth of U.S. soccer pioneers. The story of the American Football Association Cup cannot be told without an appreciation for the role played by Scotch professors. Tom McCabe has several texts that show the relationship between the textile industry and the dominant figures in the sports nascent stages, with Clark's Our New Thread team, mostly comprised of Scots, winning the cup its first three years. Another list of clubs with overt Scottish identities is compiled by looking simply at the champions and runners-up of the Cup. Formed in 1895 and still playing, the role of the Kearney Scots in shaping U.S. soccer history is a key thread in the award-winning documentary Soccer Town USA. Tremendous opportunity is there for us to find out more about these clubs, their players and supporters, and those early custodians of the game who helped it grow in its infancy. So much forgotten, there's so much to explore and discover. Factors that suspended the game's growth, the dark ages of 1899 to 1905, in which no AFA Challenge Cup were held, are an important thread for us to pursue, I hope, some other day soon. But when association came, football came back as soccer, Scots and Scottish identifying clubs were once more at the fore. From New York's Caledonian Club, to the Chicago Thistles, down to the Thistle Association football team of Cincinnati, over to the Scottish Thistle Association football club, giving exhibitions of combination never dreamed of on the coast. The story of the eventual 1904 champions of the California Association Football League is the story of Scotch professors spreading their gospel of the beautiful game from sea to shining sea. One thread I hope to follow is that of the various clubs that represented individual Scottish clans. Brooklyn's Clan McDonald soccer football club were hailed as the premier amateur team of America for the season 1908-09 in Spalding's Guide, perhaps the most popular team in Jersey or New York. Who were these Scotch professors? Or Harlem's popular Clan McDuff soccer football team, whose group photo places Tartan at the center of their identity. The stories of the Cameron and McKenzie clubs are also tales of Scotch professors waiting to be told. American soccer's golden age was the Roaring Twenties. Glaswegian-born Archie Stark began his professional career at the age of 14 with the Scottish Americans of the National Association Football League in 1912-13. Serving in the war with the U.S. Army put his career on pause, like so many footballers on both sides of the Atlantic. But Stark came back to become a goal-scoring star 
in the thriving original American Soccer League of the 1920s. Stark's great goal-scoring rival, the little giant Davy Brown, hailed as the first native-born American soccer star, was of Scottish descent, raised in a community of Scottish immigrants. Perhaps, as McCabe has suggested, Stark and Brown should be rated alongside Ruth and Gehrig in our national sporting narrative. Both died in Kearney. Neither of the nation's greatest goal scorers played at the inaugural 1930 World Cup. The Scotch professor is not just a player, though professionalism is at the etymological source of that identity. The Scotch professor is first and foremost one who professes or teaches the game. Although the squad lacked its two best goal scorers, as James Brown will discuss, a squad comprised in large part by Scottish-American professionals was led by Paisley-born Bob Millar. Beginning his career at St. Mirren, he joined the sawmakers of Philadelphia's powerhouse Distant Athletic Association in 1912, subsequently playing for several of the era's top clubs. His skills as a Scotch professor evident. He became player coach for New York's Indiana Flooring in 1925 and was an obvious choice as coach of the U.S. men's national team in 1930, leading the United States to a well-deserved third place 90 years ago this month in Uruguay. The team that shocked the world with a 1-0 upset against the old enemy 70 years ago in Brazil was led by another Scotch professor, Edinburgh-born Bill Jeffrey. Settling in Altoona, Pennsylvania in 1912, he assembled a club team with his co-workers at the Pennsylvania Railroad's repair shops. Penn State Athletic Director Hugo Bezdek recognized the value of a Scotch professor on the faculty for the Nittany Lions, and he would recite Robert Burns' poems to his student-athletes as he helped deliver nine national titles to Happy Valley. I wonder and hope if Zach Bogalki has noticed the influence of Jeffrey on campus in his first year there. As head coach of the 1950 World Cup side, it was a Scotch professor who masterminded the famous upset in Belo Horizonte, much like the Bruce had done at Bonnetburn. Just 70 years ago last week, this Scotch professor led the U.S. to that famous win. Their tradition was carried on with players imported with the North American Soccer League in the 1970s, who remained on these shores as coaches. None better represents that generation of Scotch professors than Charlie Cook, who coached me briefly in the late 1970s at a Memphis Rogue soccer camp. After retiring as a player, the Chelsea and Scotland legend co-founded Corver Coaching, one of the masterminds of the ostensibly Dutch methodology that has had such an impact on how we teach technique here in the States. He is himself a Scotch professor. And in the present, as National Director of Programs and Education for the American Youth Soccer Organization, Glasgow native Scott Snyder continues the tradition of the Scotch professors. Formed last year, the North American Scottish Coaches Association picks up this thread for those here and those to come as Scotch professors continue to teach the game on fields across our country. Just a few threads to follow. Our histories are not threadbare. Pandemic postponed public commemoration of the 700th anniversary of the Declaration, Declaration of Arbroath, and our annual rituals of Independence Day will be compromised tomorrow. I hope by showing how our stories are interwoven, you see how the role of the Scotch professor plays as key of a role in the birth and growth of soccer in the States, as the ideas of the Scottish Enlightenment, themselves sown seven centuries ago with a text from Scotland that dared profess freedom. So. With just this hint of how the character of the Scotch professor plays such a key role in the better telling of the story of U.S. soccer, I'd like to suggest the next time you hear an English coach 
scold an American child saying, it's not soccer, it's football, perhaps you'll deconstruct the cliche and say, your words all the same, spare the bairn, it's fitna for me. Thank you. Next up is Tom McCabe, a soccer brigadoon in the swamps of Jersey, is the title for his talk today. Tom McCabe teaches history at Rutgers University, Newark. He co-wrote and co-produced an American soccer doc documentary titled Soccer Town USA. Tom is currently working on a manuscript on the history of the American Football Association. Tom. The Scots uh, like to remind the world that they invented everything from the steam engine, the telephone, to macadam and penicillin. Now we're supposed to believe that they also invented modern soccer. Uh, nothing like the bagpipes to bring us back into an American soccer brigadier. Well, everybody dumps on New Jersey. We get parroted on TV, that Scottish invention, in The Sopranos and the Jersey Shore. We're the victim of jokes. What exit and what's that smell? Well, in typical Jersey vernacular, you can go, can't say that, but I can say that New Jersey is the greatest country in the world. We used to joke that half the national team was from Jersey. In 1990, we had John Harkes, Tony Miola, Tab Ramos, and Peter Vermees. In 1994, we added Claudio Reyna. We may be small in size and population, but New Jersey has always had a disproportionate impact on the development of the game in the United States. Simply put, we punch way above our size and weight. Maybe we're the Scotland of the United States. When it comes to American soccer, there is a place that is idyllic, perhaps even unaffected by time. That place is Kearney, a footballing village in northern New Jersey, across the Meadowlands from Manhattan, and just across a river from Newark, the state's biggest and most influential city. Kearney was an in-between place where generations of Scottish immigrants came to live and work and play. The legend of Brigadoon is the story of a mythical village in the Scottish Highlands. The musical features two American tourists, one aptly named Tommy, who stumble upon Brigadoon, a mysterious Scottish village that appears for only one day every 100 years. It's a love story too. And Tommy falls in love with Footpin, not Fiona. But when we Americans first fall in love with soccer, to use that term that the English gave us, we are told that they invented the game. England is the home of football. Many of us have had English coaches. We hear from them that they have the history, they have the tradition, and we do not. It even happens in American soccer stories that we tell, the history that we write. Take this photograph, for example. It's the Patterson Football Club, which is full of men from the silk districts of Macclesfield, England. They came to Patterson, dubbed the Silk City, and they brought football with them. They claim, as you can see from the writing there, that they are the first club playing association football in the United States. Were they? I think not. The Scots played before them, downriver, in Newark, 
and carnal. Yet even though I knew better, working on the Scottish influence in American soccer, I still wrote a sentence a few years ago that says the Scots are especially proud of their inventiveness, yet they did not invent modern soccer. So our Scottish friends and the Scotch Professor Network are telling us different and we need to listen. On this Independence Weekend, we once again need to declare our independence from the English. As Jed O'Brien argued earlier, we can no longer have an Anglo-centric view of the game, especially its origins. The assumption is that American soccer's DNA is English. In reality, it's also Scottish, and there's no better place to find a soccer brigadoon than in Corny. Let's talk about some Scotch professors then, from two different Clark families, both of Paisley, Scotland. William Clark, pictured here, brought Clark Thread Company from Paisley to Newark just after the American Civil War. In the wake of the invention of the sewing machine, the Clark's major innovation was to create usable sewing thread for that machine. Soon, almost every household had spools of Clark's thread. Clark needed skilled labor, so he turned to his native Scotland. Thousands of Scots, men, and women, and children, mostly from Paisley and Glasgow, came to work in the town's massive thread mills in the late 19th century. So many Scots came across the Atlantic Ocean that Corny was labeled on one period map, the Highlands of the Passaic. In some cases, new arrivals didn't touch land till they set foot on Corny soil. They transferred from one boat to a Clark one at Ellis Island, and then sailed into Newark Bay and up the Passaic to one of Clark's Riverside docks. There they worked for up to 14 hours, five and a half days a week in one of these factories. Many of them were girls and young women. They made William Clark the wealthiest Newarker in the early 1880s. He was so wealthy that he built this mansion and every piece of material, stone, marble, wood, was imported from Scotland. For his time though, Clark was considered an enlightened boss, so he provided for his workers. It was a different kind of corporate welfare, really paternalism, where Clark Thread provided subsidized meals, annual addings to the Jersey Shore, and even recreation for its workforce. Men from the mill wanted a soccer team in 1883. The first recorded game pitted merry men versus single men. Married men won, a rematch was lost. ONT, after our new thread, Football Club, also spawned the American Football Association, founded in 1884. All but one of the officers were Scottish. Modeled after England's Football Association, the AFA also had a knockout competition. So the forerunner to US soccer and the US Open Cup was started in a company firehouse in Newark. That spark was lit. The first American soccer dynasty pictured here was the Clark Threadmills team, which won the cup three times in a row from 1885 to 1887. When we look at early match reports, we can see the Scottish influence. That other William Clark, the mill superintendent, no relation, served as president 
of ONTFBC. Other Clark men served as officers, including his sons, Robert and William, both who went to Princeton, bastion of Scottish Presbyterianism. They played in some of those early matches, which featured the Scottish formation, the 226, a February 1884 match between ONT and Patterson, said to feature a fine exhibition of passing. Many of the players had played in the old country, it was noted, including Jack Swithenby, who had played for Bolton's Great Lever Football Club, a team with a handful of Scotch professors. Swithenby would become ONT's star and captain. He was also the captain of the first unofficial international on U.S. soil when he led out the American side against Canada at Clark Field in November of 1885. As already mentioned, Archie Stark also has to be included in the American Scotch professors. I've focused on some 19th century ones, but Stark is the first inductee into the National Soccer Hall of Fame. He came from Glasgow in 1910 and started playing professionally at the age of 14. After scoring 67 goals in 44 games, people started referring to him as the Babe Ruth of American soccer. And I just pulled this up while I was listening to Jim. This was a poem uh, written by Archie Stark uh, hanging in his bar, and I'll include it now. My whiskey's good, so is my beer. Come and enjoy an hour's good cheer. The more you speak as friend to friend, the sooner will your worries end. Keep politics and creeds away, and part to me another day. With friendship firm from dawn till dark, so here's best wishes, Archie Stark. And then we have Davy the Little Brown, Giant Brown, was a center forward for David's favorite early 20th century team, the New York Giants. He scores 53 goals. He's a huge rival of Archie, born not far from where Archie's home was and still is today in East Newark. He was raised on the neighborhood sandlots and pictured here playing for the Erie Athletic Association after World War I. So he was the first American homegrown soccer star, but the Scottish roots, the Scottish influence is still there. When I interviewed gentlemen in Kearney about growing up there, one of them said, and I quote, he was a retired fireman and soccer coach, I liken Kearney to Brigadoon, a Broadway musical about a mystical kingdom in Scotland that came around every 100 years. This was our Brigadoon, everyone who grew up here. Some say it's gone now, but it will never go away. And the key thing was soccer. End quote. Brigadoon, that 1947 Broadway musical, concludes with a love song, perhaps one that can be applied to the enduring love of soccer cultivated by the Scotch professors. Lonely men around me trying not to cry, till the day you found me, there among them was I. I saw a man who had never known a love that was all his own. I thought as I thanked all the stars in the sky, there but for you, go I. Thank you, Tom. Uh, next up, uh, Scott Hollander. Uh, Scotch Professors, the Scottish Influence on Early Soccer in Western New York. Scott Hollander is currently the Associate University Librarian for Administration and Distinctive Collections at the University at Buffalo Libraries, where he has worked for over 20 years. He is responsible for the oversight of libraries outreach, marketing, public programming, and curation of li library exhibitions. 
He's been working on his Buffalo Soccer History Project, a digital archive of Buffalo and Western New York State soccer history since 2017. Welcome to the SASH session, Scott Holland. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, super excited to share some information about Western New York soccer history. I know time is short, so I'll, I'll just jump right in. I've broken this talk into five parts and we'll start by defining what I mean by Western New York. New York is a large state and for this project I'm including Rochester as well as Niagara Falls and Jamestown in my definition. A reminder that Buffalo is a border town and Canada has a major impact on the Western New York region. Buffalo was founded as a village in 1801 and a city in 1832. It grew significantly as a result of the construction of the Erie Canal, and at the start of the 20th century, the region advanced from hydroelectric power generated by the Niagara River as industry expanded rapidly. It's easy to forget that before it was the Rust Belt, the Great Lake, City were, Great, Great Lake cities were boom towns, and in 1900, Buffalo was the eighth largest city in the US with a steady influx of immigrants. Steel, auto, and airplane production fueled the need for workers. In 1840, the St. Andrews Scottish Society of Buffalo was formed, a charitable organization committed to promoting Scottish culture. And in 1870, the society started holding annual Scottish games. The, the 1889 games drew over 30,000 people, including almost 10,000 Canadians. The first Canadian football club was established in 1875. By 1878, the Canadians realized that in order to grow the game, they needed to involve the Americans. They hoped to arrange a Scottish club tour of the US and Canada with a stop in Buffalo in 1879. A tour never did stop in Buffalo that year, but the Canadians continued to work with the organizers of the Scottish Games and eventually football with a corresponding Scottish Cup was added to the Western New York Scottish Games. In 1883, the Buffalo Football Club was formed, playing mostly Canadian teams. And in 1891, the Star Football Club was established, which hoped to form an international league with teams in Toronto, Preston, Galt, Hamilton, Berlin, and Paris which sounds impressive, but those are actually all cities in Ontario, Canada. Now, this is great, I love this one. In 1892, the Buffalo Courier suggested that soccer belongs to Canada and prodded the American athletic clubs to play the intercollegiate football game instead. Be patriotic, ye old clubs, and play the American game. Uh, an early example of soccer bashing in the media. But almost exactly a year later, with the help of Scottish Canadians, a small four-team association football league was formed in Buffalo. Although supportive, periodically the Canadian Toronto Scots would come down to Buffalo to remind everyone that they knew more about, knew more about the game than the Americans did. The turn of the century saw the establishment of several long-lasting football clubs throughout Buffalo, Niagara Falls, and Rochester with typical Scottish club names. 
the Niagara Falls Wanderers were formed in 1908. Most of the members of this club were taught the game in Scotland or England, but a few learned the game in the US. The Rochester McNaughton Rangers formed around 1906. James McKinley, born in Scotland, was the manager and president. You'll hear more about him later. This is a good one, I love this. At a meeting in 1910, when four Englishmen, two Swedes and one Hungarian joined the club, the Buffalo Thistles changed their name to Buffalo United. I'm sure that was a very interesting meeting. <laughs> The Buffalo Nomads were formed in 1908 by James Monroe, who was born in Scotland. And the Nomads were ranked alongside the Buffalo Rangers as the pioneers of soccer in Buffalo. The Buffalo Rangers, formed in 1908 by Scots Sandy Arthur and Bill Stewart, was the dominant club in Buffalo. They're seen here in 1910 looking very confident with the Scottish Cup that I mentioned earlier the Armory Cup for indoor soccer, and then the Nerebus Cup. I'm not sure about my pronunciation there. The Nerebus Challenge Cup was introduced in 1909. Fred Nerebus, a prominent engineer and vice president of the Buffalo Nomads, donated the cup to stimulate interest in the game. The competition was open to any club within 100 miles of Buffalo. The first three years of the Cup's existence, the Buffalo Rangers played the Rochester McNaughton Rangers in an all-Scots final. The two clubs formed an intense rivalry that lasted for years. In the next decade, the clubs in Western New York finally organized. In July of 1910, the Buffalo and District Association Football League formed. The five-team league played for the, the Fleischmann Cup, seen here. I would love to find that cup, but I have not. <laughs> in 1912, the Independent League was created. This, this league had seven clubs from four different cities, including Erie United from Erie, Pennsylvania. What's interesting about this league was its strong anti-Canadian stance. It decided to bar all Canadian players and to expel any league player who took part in a game in Canada. Finally, in October of 1913, all the leagues in Western New York united into the Northwestern New York State Football Association, which was quickly sanctioned by the U.S. Football Association. James McKinley of the Rochester Rangers was elected its first president of the league. Several teams in the league did well, especially the Niagara Falls Rangers, who made it to the semifinals of the 1913-1914 National Challenge Cup. But soon after, war brought turmoil to the world and the Western New York region. At the initial outbreak of war, a British Relief Cup was created in the Rochester Soccer District, seen here. But when the, the U.S. entered the war, soccer in the entire region effectively shut down. The Niagara area was hit the hardest as several players crossed the border to join the Canadian Armed Forces right from the start of hostilities but others left for their own reasons, including Hugh Brown, who returned to Scotland to play for the Celtics. I don't know much about him, but I would love to know more. And Laddie McCabe, who moved to the Philadelphia area 
where he had, where he had a decades-long impact on the soccer community, community in that region. But others did stay in Western New York after the war, including Billy Grissom. Born in Scotland, Billy played for West Ham United, Manchester United, and other clubs before coming to North America. He played for several Buffalo clubs from 1916 and 1917 before joining the Canadian Armed Forces in 1918. After the war, Billy was a player, coach, manager, referee, and soccer organizer during his long career in Buffalo. He died in 1943. Finally, back to James McKinley, the Dean of Rochester, New York soccer. To me, he even looks like a, a professor. He was born in Scotland. He managed the Rochester Rangers. He was the first president of the, the Northwestern New York State Soccer Association from 1913 to 1946. In 1923, he created the McKinley Shield competition for injured Rochester soccer players. He served the Western New York soccer community for over 30 years. And when he died in 1963, the McKinley Cup was created in his honor. It was still being played for in the Rochester soccer district as of 2015. I'm not sure if it's still being played for today. So here's my list of the, my top five Scottish professor, professors or football experts and teachers of the highest ranked highest ranked Jim McKinley, Billy Grissom, Jim Monroe, Sandy Arthur, Bill Stewart, who all had a deep and long-lasting impact on soccer in the Western New York area. Certainly the story does not end here, but uh, my time has, so I'll stop here. And thanks for listening. Scott, thank you so very, very much. Uh, and our final speaker today, uh, as we celebrate the 90th anniversary of the uh, first uh, FIFA World Cup, uh, so a very timely topic today, um, is James Brown. Uh, the title is The Scottish Influence on the 1930 U.S. Men's National Team World Cup Squad. James Brown, Vice President of the Society for American Soccer History and co-organizer of the 1930 World Cup Conference and Events, lives in Paris, France, and is an experienced football researcher. His grandfather, Jim Brown, played on the 1930 World Cup U.S. Men's National Team. And his father, George, in attendance here today, played professionally in the 1950s on the American Soccer League and German American Soccer League, the United States men's national team in 1957, and Pan American team in 1959. Both are inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame as the only father-son combination. His current projects include the 90th anniversary of the World Cup celebrations and collaborating throughout the world to promote football and its rich history by creating partnerships with historical societies in South America. James. Thank you so much, David, for this introduction. Thank you, everybody, for having me with you today. Uh, when we talk about American soccer history, we talk about the, the strength and the growth of the league that was basically due to uh, the 1910s, the 1920s, and it was because of the European immigrants coming over, pouring into the U.S. because of the, the textile and steel industries on the East Coast, stretching from Massachusetts all the way down to Pennsylvania and to the tri-state area, essentially making up 
the eventual American Soccer League. Uh, and of course, as we'll see later on, uh, the Midwest played a big part as well. Next slide, please. As we see here, there are a number of players from the 1930 squad who had a strong impact uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the team. But overall, throughout the history of uh, international players with experience on the men's national team, there are 47 players. So as we see here, uh, there are notably five players, and including uh, Bob Miller, who is the, the coach of the 1930 World Cup team, and a stretch from Troon on the West Coast all the way to Edinburgh. Next slide, please. Now, while the ASL was gaining momentum and expanding from eight to 12 teams in the 1920s, uh, scouts and big corporations who are funding these, um, you know, these very, very important teams uh, decided to go picking overseas. And their favorite neighborhood was Scotland. Uh, some of the examples of the people that they were able to literally either send a cable or just to go and uh, present themselves and lure them with uh, very, very big uh, amounts of money were Tommy Muirhead of uh, Glasgow Rangers, Johnny Ballantyne, uh, the forward from Partick Thistle, who ended up scoring 55 goals in his four seasons with Boston. Uh, another known is Alex McNabb uh, from Greenock Morton. And he sums it up, as you can see here, and he said, look, was offered only four pounds a week playing with Greenock. And one day, a cable, a cable came from the other side, from America, and it was an offer of about 12 pounds a week to play football and to work. So I jumped at it. Now that just makes sense that you could not ignore uh, the idea of having such. Uh, such good pay to play and work because there were no problems with this, uh, this problem of professionalism and amateurism. So uh, that was one of, the, uh, one of the, the, the problems over in Europe was the fact that a lot of the teams were, they were employing, they were basically employing their players up until the end of the season and then they would stop the contract and then they would re-employ them uh, at the end of the summer in order to, uh, uh, to not make them have to, to pay the, you know, the, these unemployment or summer charges. So, uh, so these were very, very uh, uh, logical choices for people like Alex McNabb just to head right over and to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to press my luck and see if I can uh, make it over in the U.S. Okay, next slide. Now, here we come to the 1930 World Cup team. And here we see all of the different uh, players who were essential from a Scottish standpoint. Now, there were five players. 
and one coach, as I, met, as I mentioned. So there's James Gallagher from uh, uh, Curtin Luck, and then there's Alex Wood from Lucknelly, uh, Bob Miller from Paisley, uh, my grandfather, Jim Brown from Kilmarnock on the West Coast, Andy Ald from Stevenson, also on the West Coast, and only a few kilometers away from, uh, from Jimmy Brown. And then there's Bart McGee from Edinburgh. So now looking at the composition of the team, it is sure that America's greatest performance to this day uh, throughout all international tournaments, Olympics and, and World Cups combined, is the inaugural FIFA World Cup in Montevideo, some 90 years ago today. Uh, when they reached the semifinals, uh, against Argentina, having racked up two clean sheets against the European powerhouse uh, Belgium and the South American dark horses Paraguay. Um, they finally earned third place uh, because of Jim Brown's 89th minute goal in the semifinal, placing them over uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, and they ended up getting third place because of uh, the goal differentials. So. Third place comes to the U.S., and James remains the only Scot uh, to have scored in a World Cup semifinal. Now, James mentioned in an interview uh, that the Belgians had protested uh, the eligibility of the U.S. team uh, because four out of the five U.S. players in question, and there are four Scots and one English, they were U.S. citizens. So the other one, the English player, was George Morehouse. Now, they were all English citizens, but there was one, the youngest, uh, Jim, Jimmy Brown, uh, who was bringing up the rear with his citizenship uh, that had just been freshly stamped from the, uh, from the upper courts in Bronx. Uh, two days after they left on, uh, after they left on June 13th, uh, he got word that uh, his uh, his papers had been approved, and they were just waiting for the uh, the, the final confirmation. Andy Dasher Ald, uh, who was born in uh, Stevenson on January 26, uh, he was quite a standout player from early on. Uh, he played uh, for Ardo Thistle and Parkhead, uh, and won the North Ayrshire Cup. Uh, with the Stevenson higher grade FC in the picture that you can see here. And his brother is actually uh, just below him and uh, proudly uh, uh, cuddling the, uh, the, the trophy there. So uh, one interesting thing about Andy is that he was, he enlisted in uh, the British army at the age of 13, uh, heading to World War I. And that was quite, quite controversial but it was, it would, the authority kind of shown, a, they, they kind of looked away and they, uh, and they allowed them to work in a very special uh, effort to help support uh, the war. So uh, after moving to the US, uh, Andy didn't really enjoy life uh, in the US. And he was about to head back to Scotland. Uh, but he stopped and he visited his sister in Niagara Falls. Uh, and there he played in a pickup game 
uh, and he was seen by the Providence Clams Scout, uh, the, the Providence Clam Digger Scout. Now, uh, from there, uh, in the northeastern region, uh, there was a lot of money that was being invested in soccer, and, a lot, and the pay was quite well. So, as you can imagine, uh, and he spent uh, most of his career up in the, uh, up in the north uh, section uh, with the Providence Clam Diggers. And uh, he played 277 games overall, and he was also known as the little star of the world championship uh, in the semifinal because he had his teeth. He had four of his front teeth knocked out uh, during a rather intense match with Argentina. So Andy, now we're getting on to uh, Alex Sandy Wood. And uh, uh, Sandy and his family moved to the U.S. in 1921 to, to the Midwest, Indiana. And he started his, uh, his career in the Chicago area. So uh, he started with the, the Holy, uh, he started with the, the Chicago Bricklayers and then went on to the Holy uh, Carburetors. And he was, he was pitted against his future uh, U.S. teammate and, uh, and Scottish uh, uh, compatriot James Gallagher in the 1928 uh, National Cup Finals. Uh, and that was against the New York Nationals. So unfortunately, uh, Sandy and his team lost. Uh, Alex was uh, a stalwart defender with the United States in the 1930 World Cup. He was the one who was always with uh, Jimmy Douglas, especially in the 19, in the, in the semifinal match, where uh, Jimmy Douglas was severely injured uh, very early on in the game. So he was there to try and, uh, to try and save face. But of course, as you see, uh, a final that, uh, a semifinal that ended six to one, uh, that's not always, uh, not always uh, possible to do, but he did his best. So after the 1930 World Cup, uh, he sensed that the, the league was going down and he had spent some time with the Brooklyn Wanderers. Uh, and then he decided to head back over, uh, then he decided to head back overseas and play until, uh, until, until the, uh, the start of the war. And Next slide, please. Uh, Bart McGee. Uh, Bart comes, a very, comes from a very, uh, a very cherished uh, background. His father, uh, James McGee, was a former Scottish, uh, Scottish international against Wales, and he was also a former Hibernian player uh, and heart of Midlothian manager. Uh, James uh, was also the Hibernian captain uh, when, they, uh, when, the, when they won the Scottish Cup for the first time in 1887, and he was one of the first Hibs uh, to play for Scotland. Now, uh, next slide. Okay, and coming to James Brown, my grandfather. He came over uh, in order to, to look for his father, and... He was the youngest uh, player on the squad. It took him a few years 
from 1928 to 1930 uh, to get to get together professionally and uh, and to, to get a contract with uh, with the New York Giants uh, and then he headed over and his career also took him over to uh, to the UK where he played for Manchester United and, and Tottenham Hotspurs uh, but more notably towards the end uh, before about just in the beginning of World War II he had the opportunity to play for Clyde with his brother, uh, John Brown, who was the 39 uh, Scottish FA Cup winner. And James, in his, in his first match with his brother, scored in the first 90 seconds uh, off a corner kick. And James was very, very well known for scoring uh, off of corner kicks. And then afterwards, he returned to the United States. Okay, next slide, please. Jimmy Gallagher, he spent uh, uh, over 12 years, uh, uh, just the, the first 12 years uh, uh, over in Scotland. And once he headed into the United States, uh, he played for uh, very famous teams, but he was, uh, he was a journeyman. He was always uh, playing uh, throughout many, many different teams, uh, but he played enough. Uh, to the point where he accumulated 346 matches, uh, and that puts him 30, uh, puts him fourth on the list. He's got five caps for the World Cup uh, uh, World Cup performances. And now Bob Miller, as uh, as David had already uh, mentioned, Bob Miller coming from Paisley, uh, he had a very turbulent beginning uh, with his career. But he managed to win uh, two back-to-back -back cups, uh, national cups, 1914, 1915. One with Brooklyn Field Club, and the other with Bethlehem Steel. And then he became the Scotch professor, uh, guiding the U.S. to uh, to their third place at the 1930 World Cup. And here's a picture of him uh, when he first played at, at Saint uh, Saint Mary, uh, 1909 and 1911. And just as a last uh, note, both Alex Wood and James Brown played against each other in the Southern League uh, before they uh, came back, uh, before the, the start of World War II. So as it goes, they played for about, uh, they played in about five games uh, against each other. And so just to, to finish up, uh, as Scotch professors have spread their influence uh, and their knowledge throughout the world in the in the beautiful game. It's my hope that they will continue over and over again to to share uh, the joy and the passion of football. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, James. Uh, thank you to all of our speakers. And um, we had planned to keep this to 90 minutes. That leaves us with the just under two minutes for questions, but I think we might be able to stretch that uh, uh, with some added time before the referee blows his whistle three times. So are there any questions for any of the speakers or any comments uh, in general? We need Feel Kevin free to either pop in with questions or type them into the chat and uh, we'll read them out loud, however you feel uh, most comfortable.
sorry, I, I feel like an intruder talking about um, the Scottish influence in Newfoundland, which uh, at the time we were talking was not even part of Canada. As you know, Newfoundland becomes part of Canada only in 1949. But, but the origins of, of, um, of, of football in St. John's in the capital are completely Scottish. The first team uh, was called, that was nicknamed the Gemmels Man. Uh, the, the real name was Terranova Football Club. And it was completely made up of uh, Scottish who worked for this uh, uh, Scottish enterprise. And the second best, the first, the, the best team at the time in the early 80s uh, was called Cathedral Works and was made up of um, uh, half of them were Scots. Uh, who had played in Scotland and uh, over the course of two summers, they played uh, five games against the local teams, including the Terranova, and they outscored them 12 to one and, and won all five games. Um, so the, 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 the Scottish influence was very, very uh, much present um, here as well. So much so that the newspapers and reporting the, the games evaluated uh, the matches on the basis uh, of how good the passing or the combinations, which was the term that was used, had been, uh, which is another indication of the Scottish influence, of course. Uh, I have a question, if I may. Uh, yes, Gator please. Grimm. Gedder Graham or anyone, Jim McIntosh, just curious about the Scottish style of play in the 1870s and 1880s. Was it short passing and a lot of tricky dribbling? And how did that compare to how the English played at the time? I take that. Uh, Jed, you go for that one. Um, so in the 1870s, the, the two types of play of England and Scotland was extremely different. Uh, in England, you were a cheat if you passed the ball. You're a coward, okay? Because the whole point of the game was to dribble until you were tackled. When you were tackled, you kicked the ball up in the air and everybody ran after it. And you were backed up by the players in the team, okay? So it must have looked like a giant game of playground football. It was very individualistic. Whereas Scotland played a passing and running game where they had tactics, they planned, they played in pairs and they passed the ball around. And even though the players from Scotland were smaller and lighter than English players, well, if you can't get close enough to the ball to kick it, it really doesn't matter. And that's the logical scientific game that Scotland exported all around the world. But every history book will tell you that England founded it. Very good. Thank you. I, I just wanted to say congratulations and well done to everybody who spoke. It was uh, really interesting. Yes. And keep up uh, all the work that you guys do. And, and this Thank is so Andrew Pollock, who is president of the Scots American Club in Corny, New Jersey. And he's in the club right now. You can see the scarves and jerseys and pictures uh, in, the, in the background. So any of our our Scottish friends ever make it to uh, the New York area, we have to go to the Mecca. Thanks, thanks again, guys. We're just about back open. We're allowed to use the guard to the grace of Governor Murphy. Uh, hope to see all you guys soon. Can't wait, can't wait to be back there. Thank you so much for joining us. Anyone else?
Well, with that, uh, we are uh, beyond our uh, 90 minutes. Um, so I think we're going to blow the whistle three times and call it full time. Uh, thanks to uh, everyone for uh, joining us, uh, for our speakers, uh, Graham, Jed, Jim, uh, Tom, uh, Scott, James, and myself. Uh, thank you, everyone else, for joining us. Um, I see something's popped up uh, in here. Brian, uh, uh, his own work, I must say, is uh, going to be very rich in this kind of content. If you're actually looking for the Scotch professors, I think you'll see it's it's there. It's there for us to tease out. So uh, on behalf of the Society for American Soccer History, thank you to the Hamden Collection for joining us. Thank you very much. And uh, to all the members of SASH, uh, thanks for making this uh, first first Friday such a very fun SASH session. Uh, enjoy your uh, independence uh, weekend, everyone. Uh, Slancha to our friends in Scotland and uh, may God bless America.